Bible, there's some right back there. You're going to want one. We're in Luke chapter 16. We're in a series called Glimpse. If you haven't been here the last couple weeks, um, here's the basic idea. When Jesus tells a story, uh, says in John 14, Jesus says, he answers a question. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we see Jesus, we get a glimpse of who God is. When he tells a story, when he tells us uh, a parable or something, we get this, this, this window into who this God is, what kind of things grow in the heart of God, what kind of God Jesus came to represent. So uh, as we look at these parables, we're hoping that, I'm hoping that as we do, uh, some of the things that we assume about the way we read the scripture are challenged. I'm hoping that as you uh, enter into this kind of uh, series and story with us, that uh, you might, in fact, get a glimpse of a different kind of Jesus or a new Jesus that maybe you hadn't seen before because of some of uh, the ways we're looking at these things. So just by way of review, we've talked about a couple of things that are going to be really important, and, and we'll show a couple of pictures here. Uh, not quite yet, though. One, there's two real classic interpretations of how we read parables. If you could use words to describe it, it would be, one would be theological or eschatological, meaning Jesus tells a story and it's about the kingdom. It's about this thing that's coming that Jesus talks about all the time. And so we read parables through this lens that what he's trying to tell us is something theological, something about what's coming. The other possible way or or way that we do uh, often is uh, like a a moral. It's got a moral lesson or uh, something that Jesus is saying about life and humanity and how to relate to other people. And so as he tells this parable, we read, what's the moral lesson that we're trying to get from this? Uh, the last couple weeks, we offered a, a maybe uh, I offered a, a new idea, um, which we'll throw this first first one up there. Uh, this is a picture that uh, should show you uh, a first century ancient Near Eastern cu- uh, culture or class system. So at the top of it, you have the governing classes. Usually one person, it's a ruler. They have all the power. Just below that is the governing class. This is the five percent of the people in the culture. And typically, they're the wealthiest, they're the richest. They have a lot of power, and they do have a lot of power because of the land that they own. And then you have sort of their little retainer class, the people who, who do their work, right? These are the people that, the bureaucrats and whatnot. But really, they, 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 they follow the whims of the people who have the power. And then the lowest class, the biggest class, is sort of the peasants and the expendables on the bottom. So what if we read Jesus' parables through this kind of a lens? So when he speaks and he says, a rich man, so on and so forth, we start to think, okay, who is this and where do they fit in the class structure. And as we do, I think it opens up a whole nother category of possibilities. Um, So this is part of how we're going to read this parable today. But then the second part is this. What if parables aren't like stories or um, fables would be the closest example that we have, but in a literary term or a literary fashion, you kind of go from left to right. You have myths which kind of establish and create these Big themes, not myths like fairy tales, but myths that are dominant framing narratives in a culture, right? For us, as Americans, the American dream would be a myth that we, is sort of just there and it, it shapes everything that we think about and how we do economics and politics and sociology, all that stuff. It's a myth. So going from that side, apologue is, is, is something that reinforces that myth or, or it kind of uh, gives reason to believe that myth. The action one is like it's classic novel, right? It takes the themes that are on the left side and it puts it into maybe a fictitious story or something, but it's talking about the same kinds of themes, right? And then satire, if you've ever read Voltaire, Candide's Voltaire, uh, or Voltaire's Candide, I think it is, uh, is a satire. It critiques all of the assumptions that people have about the things on the left. And all the way over on the right side would be parable. It's a, and, and one particular author that, and researcher that I'm stealing this from would say, parable is absolutely subversive. 
right? It's taking all the things that you assume and it's just throwing darts at it. It's poking holes in it. It's undercutting it. And so parables, when Jesus speaks and he tells these stories, and not just Jesus, right? He's not the only Jewish teacher in the first century that had ever walked the face of the planet. There's lots of Jewish teachers and they all, lots of them told parables. So when they do, what are they participating in? It's this subversive speech act that's actually poking holes at the cultural assumptions that everybody believes and, and that, that kind of make up the social dynamic of the world they live in. So in, if, if this is actually what's happening, then as we read Luke 16, I think some very interesting things rise to the surface. So here's what I want to do today. Uh, I want to break down this parable that we just read, uh, and it's in two, two different parts. A lot of people would say that this parable, the first part is kind of, uh, you know, color commentary, but the second part is really where the meaning lies. And I, I'm going to offer, a, uh, if you know me, I'm going to offer a different perspective, and you're probably not shocked by that. But I think the two are absolutely connected. So I want to work through this parable verse by verse and look at some different things in light of some of the things we've already talked about with the society and culture and all that and see where that doesn't land us. Does that sound good? All right, let me ask you if I could. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in here, and we'll dissect this thing. God, I pray that as we look at your word, that you would, again, that you would become alive, that you would become uh, very present and real. God, I ask that you would uh, move me out of the way if there are things that you want to say that I'm not uh, aware of at this point, and uh, I pray you would use the, the study that's been done and uh, my heart's desire for the gospel to be proclaimed. God, I pray that it would be loud and clear. Your voice would be the loudest today. We pray in your name. Amen. Start in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Jesus, in one sentence, sets up something that is, uh, everyone would have went, whoa, okay, let's talk about this. Rich man. So we're talking about who are the rich man. Uh, these are the people who have wealth. And remember, wealth is always connected to land. So according to our little chart, wealth is always connected to land in the first century because the, the major commodity in our, in our culture is, of course, cash. Uh, but in this culture, it was land. It was the ability to farm and use the land. So we have a rich man. He's dressed in purple. Uh, for those of you that don't know, purple was a dye that was used, and it was the most expensive dye that you could possibly purchase in ancient Near Eastern culture, which is why to this day, people, when they talk about royalty, they talk about majesty. Purple is a, is a symbol or a color that's associated with royalty and majesty and wealth and power. Okay? It was the most expensive dye you could get. So this guy, he's rich, and he dresses in purple. Not only in purple, but he wears fine linens, right? This is something that nobody, the top of the top, could afford is fine linens because uh, you know, this is a, a very pragmatic culture. They're farmers, they're peasants, they, they work the land. So to wear fine linens is sort of like you know, high fashion, right, uh, the song. Uh, so that's who we're talking about. And then it says he lives in luxury every day. He eats and lives in luxury every single day. So in one brushstroke, Jesus describes what person at the, in, in our class little structure, right? This is a question I'm asking you. The top 5%, okay? So he describes this person. He's at the top. Now, remember, these people have land, but it's not because they were good real estate investors, right? It's not because they were savvy business people. More often than not, these folks would lend money or, or lend something to peasants, farmers who had land, land that had been inherited year after year, generation after generation. They get to a hard spot. They go to somebody who has money, and they ask for a loan. These people are like predatory lenders, and they would loan money, but then they would do it at such crazy interest rates that when the people couldn't return the loan, when they couldn't pay back the loan, they'd take the land from them. So the person that Jesus describes is not wealthy because he's inherited a lot of land, most likely, but more, more, more likely uh, because he has you know, extorted his fellow countrymen and taken their land from them. Now, 
Luke 15, parable right before this. Have we seen Jesus do this before? Where like in one brushstroke, he paints a picture of somebody. You guys remember the parable of the prodigal son? Right? Look at Luke, Luke 15. It says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party. Same thing, right? Put a robe on him. It's a symbol of something. The ring, the family ring, had all kinds of implications culturally. Uh, uh, put, a, uh, uh, put sandals on his feet and kill the fattened calf. So this guy, uh, he comes back and Jesus throws him this huge party and in one little phrase, we know what kind of person this is. Same exact thing that's happening in this passage, Luke 16. Now, verse 20, it says, At his gate he laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, do not miss what Jesus does right here. Because this is, this is a bomb. Jesus puts... The top of the top and the bottom of the bottom, where? Right next to each other. These people would never meet in culture. They'd, I mean, we do this now, right? How many beggars have you seen laying outside of the gates of the Interlock and Country Club? Zero. Why? Because rich people who have lots of money and wealth don't want to see poor people begging, right? I'm just going to say it as it is. I don't want to see it because it makes me uncomfortable, Right? And then I start thinking about the things that I have and how much and if I should give some away. That's an uncomfortable spot to be. So we do everything we can to separate these people. And yet, Jesus puts the guy right at his gate. This would have, I mean, if, if there were a group of beggars and they were somewhere uh, in, in the culture, in the city, it would not be at the rich, rich people's gates. Right? There would be a section of town for them. Right? It's called uh, right out in front of the Excel Center. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? This is where they would be. Not by the rich man's gate. So Jesus puts them right next to each other, about to face off, and, and uh, n- not only is he from the expendable class, right? Lazarus is the lowest of the low, but furthermore, he's totally unclean. He's, he's got dogs licking the sores that he has. He, he, he can't even defend himself against the dogs who would have been around the poor people begging, uh, and now they're licking him. Turn back to Numbers chapter 5, if you will. Numbers chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. And I want to read just a little section about, this is the law, uh, of, of course, from the Israelites and Moses. Numbers chapter 5, verse 2 says this. Command the Israelites to send away from camp anyone who has an infectious skin disease, or a discharge of any kind, or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send them away, male and female alike. Send them outside of the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did this. They sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had instructed. What's being said here? What happens if you're in the first century and you have been sent outside of the camp? A couple of things. Number one, you have been, you have been removed from community. You have been removed from relationship. You have been removed from the group of people that define you and give you life, meaning, and purpose. Now you're outside of them and you're isolated. You're alone. Not only that, but where is God? God's, of course, at the temple. He's at the Holy of Holies, which is inside the camp, which is where the people are. So you're not only isolated from your countrymen, from your fellow human beings, but you're isolated from where the presence of God would be. So this is the person we're talking about. Lazarus is not only a beggar, but he is the lowest of the low. He is unclean ceremonially. So Jesus puts these two people right next to each other. Fascinating. Verse 22 says, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
What seems to be really, really benign, right? It's just a descriptive verse. Actually, is quite shocking if you unpack it a little and you know what to look for. Essentially, what we know of Lazarus, we know of spiritual details. The spiritual details that we get, are, they have deep significance, right? He's with Abraham. He's next to Abraham's side. We'll unpack that a little bit. And we get next to nothing about the rich man. What we get only confirms what we already know. He's rich, and he could afford his own burial. Lazarus, on the other hand next to Abraham's side. Now, before we move on to part two, because this is kind of the end of part one in the parable, before we do that, I want to insert some cultural assumptions that might be at play as you're listening to this the first time around. Um, turn to John chapter nine, if you will. As you do, I would say, uh, sometimes we get a little bent out of shape and we, we wonder, how can I figure any of this stuff out? How do, I'm not seminary trained. How do I have any chance? We talked a little bit about this last week. I would submit to you that if you pay attention, you could get this part right here. If you pay attention, John chapter 9 reads this way. As he went along, he saw a man, Jesus is talking, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So this is another another parable that Jesus is about to, another story, but the assumption that the disciples have, they see a guy blind on the side of the road, and they ask Jesus right away, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Because the assumption is that if you have something wrong with you physically, if there's some sort of physical deformation or some sort of challenge mentally or physically, that you were cursed by God. So to, have, to be poor, to be a beggar, to have something wrong with your body, you were cursed by God. Now, the converse of that, the other side of the assumption, the other side of the coin is this. If you're happy, healthy, and wealthy, you're what? Blessed, right? You're blessed by God. So deeply uh, rooted in the, in the consciousness of the people we're talking about here is this assumption that if you have something wrong with you, if you're poor, if you're a beggar, if you have a physical, uh, mental uh, challenge or deformation that you have been cursed by God. And if you're healthy, wealthy, and, ble- uh, uh, healthy, wealthy and, and okay, then you're blessed by God. So this is an assumption. Now, what's really interesting and what's important for us to figure out or get at is how do these people get to that point? So the people who would have heard Jesus telling the story of the first century, how did they get there? How did they come to this assumption? How did they, they get to the point where they just believed that they walk by and they see a blind guy and they say, who sinned, him or his parents? You got to get this. The spiritual and religious leaders of their day codified these beliefs. They did so through particular interpretations of the Torah and the prophets. Now, what's the Torah and the prophets? This is the, the, this is the book for who? The Israelites. Okay? So particular spiritual religious leaders codify these beliefs by interpreting scripture, Torah, and prophets in a certain way. Okay? The Torah and the prophets, it's the book of the Israelites. Who is the father of the Israelites? Abraham! Our father Abraham had many sons, many sons, and I honor them. You know this, right? So, I mean, this gets juicy really fast. And if you, get, if you get where this is going, it gets really good. So these people assume that if you're, if, you're, if you're a beggar, if you're Lazarus, you're cursed by God. How did they get there? By the religious and spiritual leaders interpreting Torah and prophets in a certain way that, that basically uh, 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 um, legitimated the beliefs that they had about this beggar and that he was cursed by God. You still tracking? This is huge. This is massive. And what's really important to note at the end of part one is the chasm of difference between Lazarus and the rich man. 
In just a few short verses, we've painted a picture here where it is literally like black and white. It is as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, Counting Crows, or Casting Crowns. (laughs) Oh, I love Counting Crows, and that's all I'll say. Part two of the parable starts this way. So this is just like, bam, verse 23, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So you have a rich man, you have Lazarus. According to the assumptions of the first century, who would be by Abraham's side, who would be blessed, who would be in a favorable spot on the other side of the afterlife? Of course, the rich man, who would be condemned and in hell burning, tormenting? Of course, Lazarus. Now, this is, of course, where so many of us have thought that this parable is about heaven, it's about hell, it's about the afterlife, it's about who goes where, it's about how we decide who goes where, and it's about a picture of what these two things look like. But... Let me ask you a very important question, because this is bolstered by our, our, our literalistic interpretations of Revelation, right? Uh, this idea about heaven and hell, and, uh, and, and hell is this lake of fire, will people be tormented forever, all this thing. Let me ask you an important question. If we're going to read it literally, and, this is about, and that's what this is about, heaven and hell and who goes there and what it looks like, has anyone ever talked about the fact that they can speak to each other? That heaven and hell are so close in proximity, that Lazarus and a rich man can have a conversation with one another, in, one in heaven and one in hell. Interesting. I didn't get that version. What if it means something else? The, this is, I would say this is one of the unfortunate cases of translation, where translation doesn't actually help us. The word that's translated hell in this text is a word called Hades or Hades uh, in Greek. There's a number of words that get translated hell, one of them being Gehenna, which refers to a valley outside the city. This one, Hades or Hades, which refers to this idea in the first century that we'll unpack. Be that as it may, when we get Hades, it's translated hell now. Let me introduce a term to you, and it's called anachronism. Here's the definition. An error in chronology, especially a chronological misplacing of persons, events, objects, or customs in regard to each other. If we read this verse and we read it backwards from where we sit, we are reading it anachronistically, or we're we're performing an anachronism as we read the text. What we want to do is try to understand the text from its original context. Here's one author. He says this. In the first century, thinking about life beyond death was in a state of great flux and uncertainty. It would be clearly anachronistic to imbue the parable with cosmology of later Christian thought. Hades is equivalent to Sheol, which is a Hebrew concept, in that it is the shadowy abode of the dead to which all people without distinction must come. Hades is therefore like a waiting place where righteous and sinners alike are gathered after death but separated from one another. Totally, completely different understanding of hell than we would have, right, as 21st century Christians. So for us to read it backwards and read our you know, cosmological assumptions and assumptions about Dante's Inferno and all this other stuff back into the text, totally uh, un- unwarranted reading of the text. So if that's not what it's about, if it's not about heaven and hell and the afterlife and where you go and how you get there and who's there, then what is it about? Let me offer two thoughts that I think will, will maybe not clear some things up, but I think give some color. Notice in verse 24 how the rich man treats Lazarus. 
Listen to what he says. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send who? Lazarus. To dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in the agony of fire. Remember the first part of the parable? We had this massive distance between the rich man and Lazarus. Why? Because of wealth, because of power, because of the things that have happened to get this person there. And then we had the beggar, the lowest of the low. How do typically rich people treat poor people? Go get this, go get that. Do this, do that. Excuse me, servant, I would like a glass of water. Do whatever. It's this beck and call kind of idea. And even after death, The rich man has the gall, the audacity to call up into heaven or wherever they are. Abraham's side, we won't get into all the, we could do weeks on that. But he calls up into wherever the rich, or Lazarus is, and he says, send Lazarus to get me some water. Unbelievable, this guy. Unbelievable. I mean, just a deadpan shocker. He then goes on in verse 27. Abraham answers and he says, listen, it's not going to help, okay? And then he says, hey, listen, I beg you, Father, again, send Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. All the distinctions about classes and how they have separated the two people before are still present here. The attitudes that often come with rich, poor, class distinctions are still there. And often, often, not always, but rich people think they're entitled. I've heard people talk about American teenagers, and they're like, oh, American teenagers, they're so, they think they're entitled to everything, and this, that, and the other thing. We happen to live on the richest soil in the world. We'll leave that for you to wrestle with. And they demand special treatment. So uh, if it's not about heaven and hell and where people end up afterwards, I would submit to you, let's look at it through that lens. Here you have the rich man still barking orders at the lower expendable, poor beggar, even though they're worlds apart. Secondly, this, and this one is the kicker. For me, it's like, oh, snaps. Notice who's delivering the news to the rich man. And notice what he tells him. Who's delivering the news to the rich man? Abraham. Who is Abraham. He is the father of the Israelite nation. If you're going to put a poster child of Israel and everything it's about on the wall and people would look at it and go, Israel. It's Abraham. If it's not Abraham, it's Moses. But you could make a strong case for Abraham, right? Father Abraham, he's the the, the father of the nation. And how does he deliver the news to the rich man that this is not how it works? Torah and prophets. How do the rich, social, spiritual elites confirm and legitimate their belief that if you're you're wealthy, you're blessed, and if you're poor, you're cursed? How do they do it? Torah and prophets. I mean, this is the ultimate, like, booyah! You know, I mean, Jesus is just like, eat that! He puts it on a silver platter, and he's like, serves serves him up a can of you-know-what, right? I mean... You guys don't look half as excited as I am about this, but I'm telling you, this is the moment where it's like, this is the punchline of the whole parable for me. Jesus says, listen, rich guy, 
You have Abraham, the symbol of hospitality and wealth among Israel, and he uses the law and the prophets, the same text, the same book that rich people and spiritual leaders have used to legitimate their belief that if you're wealthy, you're blessed, and if you're poor, you're cursed. This is what he uses, and he says to them, your brothers don't need the law and the prophets because they have everything that they need to ensure that they do not end up where you are. This is the great reverse of the kingdom. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. I would say it has everything to do with that and less to do with our own, under, our own backwards reading of heaven and hell and who ends up where and how they get there. Let me ask a couple of questions as we close, and I want you to really think about these questions. What does it mean for Jesus to challenge our assumptions about the way God works? What does it mean for Jesus to challenge our assumptions about the way God works? You see, in in a context like this, it's no different than us. We assume that God works in certain ways and that certain people are in and certain people are out. And they're, they're in and they're out because of X, Y, and Z. Because they believe A, B, C, D, or whatever. Because they participate in some kind of behavior, some kind of lifestyle. Fill in the blank. Okay? I don't think it's a far stretch to say that the Lazarus of their day, the beggar, the destitute, the lowest of the low... These are the unclean, the, the, the as far from God as you could get in this culture. And I don't think it's a far cry for us to insert some people like that in our day. And I just want to ask a question. What is it like for Jesus to challenge our assumptions about the way God works? Because this one is a bomb. I'm not creating dogmas. I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm just asking questions. What does it mean for us to see our Lazarus kinds of people culturally as those who are near the heart of God? I'm not making doctrines. I'm not making dogmas. I'm just asking questions. What does that look like? And how does that feel? Are there ways in which we have used Scripture to uphold the assumptions that we have about the way God works, that Jesus wants to come right here into our midst and challenge? I'm just asking some questions. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to sing a few songs together as we close, but I'm going to ask one more question. And it's going to be quasi-question, quasi-prayer. So if you want to close your eyes and think, go for it. If you want to look at me, whatever. Here's the question. What does it mean for us to hold loosely the things that we believe are true, the things that we believe are biblical, the things that we believe are godly, from God? What does it mean for us to hold them loosely enough to pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner who has crafted a God in my own image? Reveal yourself, Jesus. Shock me with your love. Overturn me with your grace. Upend me with your mercy. Disassemble my dogmas and doctrines and give me your heart, Jesus. Give me your eyes. Give me your ears.
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner who crafts you in my own image, who makes you out to be like me, who, who agrees with me, who thinks like me. God, I pray you would shock me with your love. I pray that you would just upend my assumptions about the way you work and that you would challenge me with your grace and your mercy and your love. God, help me to accept the invitation to love God with my whole being and my neighbor as myself. That's it. God, help me when I judge, when I see a Lazarus kind of person who is certainly out, who is certainly on the outside, who is certainly not a person who will inherit the kingdom. God, forgive me. God, help me not take your seat, but trust that you are God, that you love humanity, that you love creation, that you want it back, and that you in your wisdom and in your love and in your purity and in your holiness, God, would work that out. Help me, God, to love my neighbor as myself. Shock me with your love, overturn me with your grace, upend me with your mercy.